is from the Epistle of James, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have, because you do not ask God. When you ask, do not... You, you do not receive, because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on w- your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says, without reason, that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against brother or sister, or judges them, speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbour? Well, thank you very much, Christopher, for reading to us. If you have sight of those verses on a service sheet or in a Bible at home, that'd be great to keep them open uh, in front of you. Let me just say, it's nice to see people that have not been able to be with us for a while. I know we've been rejoined by some people and others are are online who um, we wish were here, but it's nice to be able to gather in person and remotely. Um, I'm glad to be able to speak to to you this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word together. We're conscious, Heavenly Father, of um, our need of a word from outside and a word from you above all uh, to shed light in our world. It is our prayer that Uh, seeing your word and looking into the mirror this morning, we would take action rather than just forget what we've seen. Have mercy on us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. There was an occasion once where a Christian was in conversation with someone who wasn't a Christian, and they offered that person a Bible which was flatly refused. Why would I want to read a Bible, a book about the God I don't believe in, this person said. But the Christian wasn't easily discouraged. I'm not just offering you a Bible because it tells you about God, they said. The Bible is the best book to read if you want to know about people. Lots about God, for sure. But this is a book which understands and describes the human race better than any other as well. This book fits with the world we live in and the people we are. And I suppose a Bible passage like ours today is a good example, is it not? As 
cluster bombs fall in Ukraine. The Bible actually turns a spotlight on each one of us. It was lovely to have that note of personal penitence in Susan's prayer this morning. Because the Bible turns a spotlight on each one of us and says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And of course, those words are not the text of a UN resolution being sent to an unpredictable dictator leading a military campaign against another nation. They are addressed to Christian believers within Christian churches. What causes fights and quarrels among you, asks James. There's a new phrase to describe the habit of reading the world's bad news stories on our phones. It's called doom scrolling. At any given point, the BBC live feed on Ukraine at the moment seems to have six-figure numbers reading. Obviously, that's uh, not just to people within our time zone, but further afield. But still, it's an amazing number. The time we used to spend anxiously following COVID, apparently we're all now tracking troop movements in Ukraine. And we will easily, in that situation, locate all the problems in the world out there as if that threat being neutralized will make all the difference. Now, I certainly don't want to minimize the horror of that war. It is wrong, wrong, wrong. Uh, It is appalling. The politicians have have got a better sense of how to, to stop it, but that it must be stopped, I am absolutely sure. It's not a local skirmish. Um, It is already a global act of aggression uh, with significant loss of life and livelihood. Having said all that, I'm sure that the Bible, certainly in this passage, wants me to take seriously the fact that very strong terms are used of the contribution Simon Scott makes personally, to the tally of human evil. Strife between nations is an awful extension of the brokenness of relations between individuals caused by our our sin, which affects all of us. It's writ large, it's with devastating results, of course, but it is in principle, says the Bible, at its root, to be traced back to my bloodthirsty, lusting heart. There was a correspondence column in the London Times back in 1908. Uh, Contributions were invited under the title, What's Wrong with the World? And all sorts of lengthy answers were suggested, but the most penetrating answer was from the writer G.K. Chesterton. It happened also to be the shortest answer. What's wrong with the world? His answer, Dear Sir, I am yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. Now, today's sermon won't be strictly expository, but with our international situation as the backdrop for the start of Lent, it seemed to me that I couldn't do better than to really focus on two themes from the passage we had read to us, ongoing strife and overflowing grace. So those are my two headings for today. The ongoing strife is clear enough in the verse I've already mentioned. If you've been following the series so far, No doubt you will have picked up the hints in the letter that there were strains 
and tensions amongst the Christians James was writing to. He's highlighted, for example, that there was anger. There were tongue lashings going on within the fellowship that were deadly, like a burning fire. Uh, There was a low view of the poor and disadvantaged. So if someone shabbily dressed came into the church, they were asked to sit on the floor. But for you, sir, you wearing lovely clothes. Here's a lovely seat for you. And at the same time, the rich were marching the poor off to court. Um, They were not paying their workers' wages. It emerges in chapter 5, and so on. In the closing verses of today's section, there's another hint of the kind of fractious relationships they had. Let me read verses 11 and 12 without much comment. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Never mind me uh, directing my fire against terrorists or dictators. This verse, this whole section, cautions against what in combat terms we call friendly fire, judging and slandering brothers and sisters, Christians. That is not my prerogative. I can't judge them unless I also want to take the responsibility of saving them, is the hint in those verses. Only God can take that position rightly. I sometimes say that in every gathering of a hundred or so Christians, there are a hundred reasons for disappointment and irritation and resentment. How could there not be in a fellowship which has me as a member? Or you as a member, if I can say that politely. If we never rubbed each other up the wrong way, that wouldn't be an indication that church life was great. It would actually be an indication that church life was non-existent. It'd be a sign that we weren't in each other's lives. Whereas if we are involved in each other's lives, there will be tension and sometimes, given our sinful natures, it will be like out-and-out warfare. Now, I'm not saying that to excuse our sin, but just to highlight the reality of ongoing strife within the church. I wonder if you spotted how many of the Ten Commandments are referenced in just a few verses in our reading. Here... Verses 11 to 12, it's slander, the ninth commandment, false witness. Elsewhere in the passage, it's murder. And that's exactly as Jesus mentioned, where if I hate someone in my heart, even if I just dismiss someone as a fool, nothing, that in principle is the same impulse as murder. Wishing someone was dead, wishing someone was out of my way. The sixth commandment. Even, a surprise to me as I read it, adultery. God has made me for a loving relationship with himself. He's jealous for the spirit within me to love him first. And instead, I'm disloyal. I cozy up to the world. 
which the Old Testament prophets were crystal clear, was spiritual adultery. You adulterous people, says James, using exactly the sort of language they would have used. Lies behind the seventh commandment. Or coveting, desiring what someone else has, which I don't have, the tenth commandment. So in all those sins he's highlighted in our verses, I'm setting myself up above the law. I'm rejecting the word of God. And that in turn tells you that I'm actually pushing away the lawgiver. I'm rejecting God himself. And even when we're converted, this is the point, even when we're Christians, even if I can say it like this, where we have that instinct to love the Lord our God, we will still have sinful desires which left unchecked will be deadly. I've scribbled notes to myself after hearing Josh speak at the uh, 9 o'clock service, which is always difficult to deal with because it probably means there's a sort of gear grind as I bring something else in, quite apart from the fact that I can't read my own writing. It's much better to prepare some. Since I moved to the computer as a a means of preserving my thoughts during the week, I did much better than the handwritten efforts. I used to have to rewrite my sermons two times at least to get to the point where I could read them. But just a a thought that came as Josh was speaking, that the current debate in the Church of England, which we've been piggybacking on on, uh, midweek meetings for the last month and a half, uh, tends to assume that if I have desires and feelings within me, um, it would be unhealthy to go against those desires and feelings. And you very quickly move from feeling that way to saying those feelings equate to me. Don't tell me to deny those feelings because you're actually opposing me. You're taking a stand against me. It'll be unhealthy to do that, people might think. Well, all of us, in biblical terms, are damaged goods. We're made for a relationship with God, living in a fallen world with sinful human natures. All of us are damaged goods in all sorts of ways. Our emotions, our motives, our sexual desires, if we're thinking about those things, all of us are affected by it. And the push of the Bible again and again is to say clearly to us that even when we're converted, we will still have sinful desires which, left unchecked, will be deadly, and they have to be resisted. That's part of the ongoing strife that every person in this room I know faces. I don't need to know the details, but I know you face that battle. If you're not yet a Christian, you face that battle without aid in one sense. But all of us face it. And when you factor in two other forces which are also against us, that is even more true. Because James mentions the world, that's shorthand for human society, which leaves God out of the picture. Naturally, the setup of the world is not neutral, it is anti-God. 
But we're very attracted to friendship with the world. We're desperately wanting to be in with the in crowd, which is full of danger. It can't not be if the world is opposed to God and his people. Then one final force he mentions, a supernatural enemy. This is just a throwaway line almost in these verses. The devil. He is actively opposed to us. And we are called on to resist him. With that lovely promise in verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But you put those three forces together. A powerful, malicious, supernatural enemy, the devil. A world which unites all sorts of people against the one common enemy for the world, God and his people. The world, the, the flesh we're going to come to. Because that's the fifth column for those hostile forces out there, the devil and the world, within our own hearts, our own sinful nature. You put those three together, the world, the flesh, and the devil, that evil triad. And I hope we begin to see the seriousness of our situation. Therefore, when we come to church on a Sunday or go to a home group, when we come to church, it's not for a Sunday lion, a calming quiet oasis. Our relationship with Christ is not a leisure time hobby which we can take up or drop at will. I'm not saying it isn't a safe haven on Sunday, at least I hope it is, to come to church on Sunday as a safe haven, but it's a refuge in time of trouble and serious trouble. There's an ongoing strife which is potentially deadly. When we gather for a church weekend away, it's not just for a picnic in the country, teddy bear's picnic sort of domain. No. I mean, I'm hoping it will be a lovely time for those that are are privileged to go on it. But it's not just a teddy bear's picnic. It's a serious uh, attempt to take course for the church together in a spiritual conflict which is... Is, is serious. And if you're not going, I, I invite you to pray for us in, in that vein. There is an ongoing strife that we're all involved in. So remember that next time you read about cluster bombs and nuclear terrorism. Is it possible, do you think, that James's language here is not exaggerated when we apply it to our own lives, our own church fellowship? Does it warrant that talk of warfare and murder? I'd say we want to take the Bible seriously. We end up concluding he's right. Just how serious do you think the global warfare is which we're caught up in? God's word is saying it is intensely serious with global and eternal consequences. Okay, everybody's thinking, thanks for being so cheerful, Simon. Just what I needed. All I've done is trade one war zone in my doom scrolling, one war zone, Ukraine, for another one. Thank you very much. Well, don't despair. I've got two points, and we've only covered one. Humanly speaking, there is ongoing strife. But we mustn't leave God out of the picture. Ongoing strife and overflowing grace. Don't you think those five short words... In verse 6, make all the difference. He gives us more grace. 
and maybe you can commit those five words to memory this week. One finger of your hand for each word. He gives us more grace. Ongoing strife, yes, but for every outburst of human sinfulness, there is more than enough power and love in Almighty God. He gives us more grace. The scripture says he opposes the proud. Yes, but he gives grace to the humble, overflowing grace. So we mustn't leave God out of the picture. And that's what had happened. They'd taken responsibility for themselves in James's day for satisfying all their desires. They thought the thought process must have gone something like this. Who's going to fight my corner? Nobody else will, so I must. And they had stopped praying and left God behind. Or, I suppose, he hints, they had turned prayer into a sort of slot machine and were asking for the wrong things. Josh had another brilliant point where he had a picture of a couple of vending machines up on the wall. You know, the sort of things you see in sports centres where they sell the most unsporty, unhealthy things for the benefit of people in sports centres to indulge themselves. And we had that idea that you put a, a, a prayer token in, God will dispense the goodies we want. And he says, no. When you ask and you don't get, it's because you're asking with wrong motives. So that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. And God will not give us bad things that we ask. So thank God he doesn't. Of course, that often happens then. The next thing that happens is you kick the vending machine. People that have said they've tried the, the, the prayer experiment and it didn't work, uh, blame it on God and kick the machine. Well, it's a wrong view of God. Don't let's leave God behind. Um, Let's not make the same mistake as as they were making. Please come to these prayer meetings that Edward has has helpfully mentioned and advertised. Or find a way of praying at home if you're not able to. You don't have because you don't ask God, says James. And if you ask and don't receive, it's an indicator that the motives are all wrong. We've got to bring him into the equation in the ongoing strife by praying. And even, he says, bring your sins into the equation by praying about those sins to God. What a text this passage is for the first week of Lent, verse 8. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Not that there's virtue in and of itself to lament our sins, but lamenting them in the presence of God, bringing them to him in the full and honest acknowledgement of how wretched they are, that way lies hope. Because we'll never exhaust the possibility of God's grace if we confess our sins. He gives us more grace. Remember those words. An artist once submitted a painting of the Niagara Falls to an exhibition, but they'd neglected to give it a title. 
And in the end, the gallery came up with some whimsical words to put at the bottom. More to follow. Isn't that quite good as a a painting of the Niagara Falls? That waterfall's been spilling out billions of gallons for thousands of years, and it doesn't show many signs of running out, it seems to me. More to follow. He gives us more grace. There's more grace in Almighty God to follow. More than enough for me, more than enough for whoever else needs it. And our communion today points that way, it seems to me. If ever there was a a day of darkness, it was the day Jesus died. Plenty of mourning that day at human sin. But if we will only draw near to God, he will draw near to us. Remember that curtain torn in two in the temple? Sinners, though we are, miserable sinners, as the prayer book puts it, we are invited in because of the death which we remember this morning as we share bread and wine. So, ongoing strife, but praise God, there is overflowing grace which we must avail ourselves of as we confess our sins. There's a note of confession that runs throughout this service. I'm actually going to suggest that we worthily lament our sins again and just pray that colic on first page of our service sheet again together because we've been commanded in the word of God to lament and grieve and it seems that we should promptly obey that and I invite you to join me in praying therefore almighty and everlasting God you hate nothing that you have made and forgive the sins of all those who are penitent Create and make in us new and contrite hearts that we worthily lamenting our sins and acknowledging our wretchedness may receive from you the God of all mercy, perfect remission and forgiveness through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen. And the note of contrition continues in our next hymn. Let's stand to sing together.